Thank you for uh, coming. I, I'm really <laughs> proud of being able to be here. <clears throat> My book, uh, The Fliegel Gang, is not a new book. In fact, as I was thinking as I was sitting there, uh, it took me 30 years for me to get this book out of me. Uh, as it says, I got interested in 1967 <clears throat> when the museum got a, a car. And so the editor at the newspaper that my family had owned at that time wanted to try to prove that that book, that that car was the right one. At that time, there was a, uh, uh, a company up in uh, Nebraska, Minturn, Nebraska, who had said they had the Flegel getaway car. And <clears throat> we said, nah, <laughs> no, 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 no. So the editor and I tried to figure out how to prove we had the right car. Well, so uh, we went back into the records and dug out the newspapers. And it all talked about a Buick being the car that the uh, gang drove away from the bank. So we said, okay, we, we now, but uh, so then someone said, well, they, there's a Flegel living outside of Garden City. So we tried calling and actually talked to a Fred Flegel, who was one of the four Flegel gang from 1928. We didn't get much out of him, but as I learned later as I went in the history of and gathering all the information on this, neither did anybody else. <laughs> that was just him. Uh, and... Uh, the key to it was, my grandfather, of course, the, the office was only half a block away from the, from the bank at the time of the robbery, which is uh, May of 1928. Uh, and uh, the key is the, the four guys walked in just a little after lunch and walked up to the teller, and one of them says, stick them up, and they go, smile, you know, and he goes, now stick him up, and this time he put a gun up, and she she goes whoa. <clears throat> Meantime, the president of the bank, who had always said that, by God, you weren't going to rob his bank, and if you tried, you were going to pay hell for it. He ducked around into the back door of his office, came out with a 45, and they had tr one of the four guys who was the tallest had been tagged with the uh, taking care of the senior parish. So he appears in front of the Mr. Parrish as he comes around the corner with his 45, and he shoots at the robber and hits him in the jaw. Well, <clears throat> so <clears throat> the robber uh, starts to pull up his gun, which is a 45, and or 44, excuse me. And uh, Parrish tries to shoot again, and in, in his old 45 misfires. So the robber shoots him. As Parrish is falling back, he shoots again. And the bullet hole goes into the ceiling. <clears throat> One of the other, the son who had been sitting there, got up to turn around and head back to where they had the, the other guns and a, and a button for the police. And the elder uh, member of the gang shot him and he fell dead with a bullet in his heart. The young one up by the door takes his gun and the glass, the president's office has glass on it. And he just empties his gun through the glass 
<clears throat> and today you could still go into the into the closet and see the bullet holes from places where he that he at least three of them that he missed. So he then reloads his uh, <clears throat> gun. The other guy who was by the tellers throws the uh, two uh, customers down to the ground, and he's later. <clears throat> he's so uh, all of a so now eleven you know eleven shots have gone off. They've only been in there for like 15 seconds. So the guy up front yells, go out and get the rifles. And so the, the, back, the rest of them are headed into the back. The uh, first, uh, the guy who was actually shot picks up, has a, a pillowcase. And he goes around the backside and he starts rifling the teller's drawers. Although, and he's got the tellers on the ground and the lady, the first one who was there, uh, he's dripping blood on her dress as he's going along. They take one of the guys back to the vault and uh, start filling sacks with money and bonds and liberty bonds. And <clears throat> the other guy, the one who had, had put everybody on the floor, went out, got two rifles, came back in the door and handed them to the guy at the front door. And then he's there watching to make sure nobody comes through the back door. And so they come out of the out of the uh, vault with this whole thing of money, and they head to the back door. And this one guy says, "What are you doing? You don't need to do that." And he said, "Go take him with." So they grab the second teller, and they go out the back door into their car. <clears throat> one of the guys, there's two offices down from the bank, and the two guys who step out, they look at him going, "Stand back in, get back in there." So they they back up in their offices. The guys get in their Buick with their two hostages and they take off down the street. <clears throat> Lamar is in southeast Colorado. It's on the Santa Fe main line, crosses uh, 287, which runs north and south, Highway 50, which runs east and west, and 385 that runs from Canada to Mexico. So <clears throat> the Santa Fe, unfortunately for these guys, had a train a freight train crossing Main Street at the time. So they couldn't go that way, so they had to go back around and they had to go way out of their way. Well, in the meantime, someone had called the sheriff. He was at home at lunch. So he gets in his car and runs, drives down to the bank. One of the guys who had been in the bank come out and said, there's just been a robbery and they've been shot. And the uh, sheriff says, well, get in, we'll go chase them. He turns around and runs up the street. <laughs> the other guy who has been in the bank comes out and says the same thing, and the sheriff said, well, get in, we'll griff him. And they get in, and they go around the corner, and by that time, the Santa Fe train has moved out of the way. So now they go up Main Street, and they can see the Blue Buick as it makes the big corn curve north of town. And so they're chasing it, and they follow up, and all of a sudden, the car stops, the, the Buick, and the sheriff slows down, and they toss one of the guys out, and so then take off again. Well, it turns out to have been the one-arm teller that they had taken and they threw him out. Well, they still had one hostage. So they go chase up around different roads and come back around, clear back around the other side of Lamar and stop at a creek. And the sheriff pulls up and he's got a <clears throat> dodge. And uh, he reaches back for his rifle and it's not there. <clears throat> the car had been cleaned earlier and the kid hadn't put the rifle back in. So all he had was a pistol and a shotgun. These guys are on the other side of the creek, down a hill. 
several hundred yards away. They get out with rifles like they're checking the tires on them. They realize the sheriff isn't coming. So they get out their rifles and they start taking pot shots at the sheriff's car to disable it. They, he said at one time in an interview, they probably 15, 20 shots. They finally figured he was done, got back in their car and they took off. His car was a little disabled. Like there was a whole radiator, two of the spark plugs had been busted off. But he managed to, and I, I can't, you know, to me that would be impossible, but in those days, those old cars apparently could run on just about anything. He managed to follow them sort of up the road until they disappeared into the hinterlands of Kansas. So, <clears throat> now he turns around and goes back to town. By then, the, the city police chief is no longer, is not, is not there. So the citizens all get together go out to the National Guard to the National Guard Armory and they started handing out rifles to people and started having uh, posses. So they got, <laughs> they got people all over the country chasing these guys. Well, the long part of it was they didn't find them. The, the other part of it was the guy who had been the teller who was taken was later found in a shack in the southwest of uh, Kansas shot in the head. <clears throat> the guy who was injured, they when they got back to the to the ranch they went to, we found out later, of course, uh, they knew he needed medical attention. So they drove down in a different car. They drove down to a town in uh, Kansas uh, called Dighton, and they asked the doctor to come help him because they told him that this kid had uh, gotten his leg injured in a tractor. So he decides, okay, I'll go with him, but he doesn't like their car. So he decides to take his own car, which is a Buick. <clears throat> and so the two of the robbers get in the car with him. One gets in the back seat. And uh, so he's back there and he's trying to roll the window down. And the doctor tells him, well, that's, a, that's tough with this car because that thing sticks. So anyway, they get out. And your question is, we're talking about 50 miles. You wonder at what point did the, did the doctor realize that this was not just any kind of simple accident with a kid on a the tractor. They get him to the, to the, to the uh, ranch and tell him to uh, check over the robber who's gotten the shot in the jaw. And he says, well, I'll clean it out. And he says, but you'll have to take him to a, a dentist and a surgeon because I can't do anything for it. So they, <clears throat> he, he checks out the teller who was tied up on a, on a bed in the other room. And they, they argue about what to do with the doctor. And so then <clears throat> they drive him and his, and his car back over in, in north of Scott City, Kansas to a canyon. And they stand the doctor up and tell him that they're just gonna leave him there and that, that he'll be able to walk out. No, no, one of them shoots him in the back of the head with a shotgun. But he doesn't fall into the canyon, so the guy has to go over and shove him into the canyon. And they decided, okay, we're going to roll the car off into the canyon, which they did. But they had, and they had already wiped it down. This is 1928. <clears throat> There's not a whole lot of fingerprint experts out there. But they, they had wiped it down. They thought they had wiped it all down. <clears throat> the uh, police in Lamar... And several other people had called Denver for help. And they actually got an airplane from the Colorado National Guard 
plus one uh, from Denver, another one, and then eventually one even from an, a, a town in Kansas to come out and they're flying over this whole area of, of, uh, Easter, of western Kansas and eastern Colorado trying to spot this blue Buick. Well, the guys hadn't, they had a, uh, on this farm they had cut a, a side of a, of, a garage, of a barn so they could actually flip it up as a door, run the cars inside and drop it back down. But <clears throat> places known as the Horseless Horse Ranch, when they got done, as it went out, the guys got away. Uh, the, the total of the, of the robbery was like $238,000. So it became a pretty big deal. Uh, the sheriff of Lamar, uh, they called in, the, the Colorado Bankers Association came in, they offered $1,000 a head for the reward. The county offered $1,000 a head, um, and the, uh, some of the insurance companies offered money. At one point, there was a, a, a reward for these two guys, these four guys, up to about $44,000. <clears throat> well, they went along, and with all they would, they put out big flyers about the whole thing. So they had a, they started picking people up, and they'd take the guys, the the witnesses, to to view them. And sure enough, yeah, he's one of them. He's one of them. And they're all going, no, we're not, we're not. But they would bring them back to Lamar, and unless they could prove that they weren't, they were put in jail. Only a, a year later. They've got four guys in jail awaiting trial. There is a problem. They found a fingerprint on the doctor's car, and it was transferred by the fingerprint expert from Garden City, Kansas. So the problem was none of those four guys matched the fingerprint. <clears throat> so, and the fingerprint guy from Garden City, who was an amateur, had been talking to the FBI, and he said, I know that if you look at this and you, you uh, memorize those swirls and things, that you can pick out this fingerprint and you can figure out who it was. <clears throat> so one of the fingerprint guys in, at this time, uh, 1929, some guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover has just been announced to be the new head of the FBI, which at that time was the Federal Bureau of Identification, not the other. And so they were trying to figure out where this is all going. And he's going through, and there was a, a guy was picked up in Stockton, California. And they couldn't identify him. And Al Ground's sitting there going through, and he found a, a match to that guy from a prison record in Oklahoma. His name was Jake Flegel. <clears throat> and so Al's going, he said, I know I've seen that fingerprint, I know. And so he's at lunch at the FBI headquarters, and all of a sudden he goes, I've got it! <laughs> he was looking, he runs back, pulls out that fingerprint from the, the robbery, and sure enough, it matches Jake Flegel. So, now they let the, the police in Garden City and Lamar know they know at least one of the guys who was in the gang. So the, <laughs> it gets really complicated because you don't have a federal statute about bank robbery in 1929. 
<clears throat> what you do have, though, is statute having to do with mail robberies. And so they tied this same guy into a mail robbery in California, which then brought the mail inspectors into the game. And so now you start watching the mail to the Flegel family, who lived about nine miles north of Garden City on a ranch. So you start watching their mail. And sure enough, a coded message shows up from one of the guys. He's in Peoria, Illinois. No, actually, Kankakee was this one. And that he would be there receiving his mail for a period of time under an assumed name. So the sheriff from Lamar gets in a car, gets on an airplane in Garden City, and flies to Kankakee. He gets up there, and they go, in to, go to, the, to the mail office, to the post office, and they tell him what's going on. They say, we'll keep an eye out for him. So the, the sheriff and the postmaster walk off to get a cup of coffee. And Mr. Flegel comes walking in to get his mail. So the clerk, who recognizes what was going on and had been involved in the, in the uh, <clears throat> conversation with the sheriff and the uh, uh, postmaster, follows Flegel when he tells him we don't have any mail for him. So he follows him out, and Flegel goes around and walks up to a bank and goes into a teller and wants to trade in some Liberty Bonds. Well, they get a whole, he calls the sheriff or the police, and the sheriff and the postmaster and the uh, police show up, and arrest turns out to be Ralph Flegel when he comes out the door of the bank. And uh, <clears throat> so they, they take him in, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the sheriff's looking around. He says, I know he's got a car here. So they found the keys, and they go walking around, and they found Ralph's car, which was a Ford. Uh, that was one of the weird things about this when you get down to it. There's probably a dozen, dozen Buicks and half a dozen Fords in the whole story. <clears throat> they, for some reason, Jake liked Buicks, but he also had a tendency when they were done with the robbery to blow it up or to damage it and destroy it. So <clears throat> it became interesting to try to figure out where all the different Buicks came from. Because Buick is how I got into it, but I couldn't prove that it was the right Buick. <clears throat> After they arrested Jake, or Ralph, they took him back to Lamar by air and uh, then to Garden City and then to Colorado Springs to be questioned. And the Colorado Springs police chief was involved in the questioning. At one point, there were almost 20 guys from Kansas, Colorado, the attorney general's office, the, the police, the sheriff, the, the district attorneys, all in there to question Ralph. And so the Ralph said, okay, I, I, I want to talk to a guy by the name of Cunningham who was a retired judge. And uh, so Cunningham came in and said, okay, I'll listen to you, but <clears throat> if you did any part of this, I will not attempt to, to save your life. I will do what I can. So Ralph finally, in uh, July of 1929, spills his guts and tells where the other two guys are. One of them is in San Andrea, California, <clears throat> and the other one is in Grand Junction, Colorado. So now they've got people who match the fingerprint, except they don't have Jake, but they got Ralph. And they know Jake's involved because Ralph admitted that Jake was involved. 
So they have him tied in. But <clears throat> one of the guys thought there was five robbers, but there's only four. So they finally bring him to Lamar. They talk him in. This, would, this wouldn't work today. But they talked him all into confessing before the trial, which was to be held at the brand new courthouse in October of 1929. <clears throat> so they all four agreed to confess, or three of them, they only had three. Jake hadn't been there. So they three of them con agreed to confess. So then they put him on trial. And Jake's, I, the, the Ralph's thing was they would not ask for him to be hung. Life in prison without parole, but not to be hung. Well, <clears throat> the attorney, change of district attorney, you can imagine, because of an election. And so the district attorney says, well, I'm not going to ask for it, but it's up to the jury. So <clears throat> they go through this. They, the process goes on. They're all found guilty. They're all taken to Canyon City. They end up with uh, even appeals to the Colorado Supreme Court. And they're all said, no, no, you're not, we're not going to, we're not change that. Clemency doesn't go anywhere. So finally, in uh, 1930, in July of 1930, the three of them are hung in Canyon City. Strange story there. It turns out they did, they used the hanging, but it, you know, you think about people dropping. No, no, they jerked them up. Broke their neck by jerking them up. <laughs> These, one of the things that really enjoyed in the 30 years it took me to do all this, was the, the investigation, trying to find and follow the little pieces and the turns, <clears throat> which is why the book is not as well edited as it probably should be. But it was, it was a love of life to put it all together. And the funny, I mean, it was just all kinds of crazy things that got involved. And uh, my wife almost killed me. <laughs> <clears throat> she couldn't get rid of the Flegels. When it, and it's, it's not a book that I expected to be a, a bestseller of any kind, but I knew that from the people in the Lamar area and Canyon City, Garden City and around that area that I would sell enough books. And it's been out now for 15 years, which is hard to believe, but it continues to sell, not a whole lot at a time. In fact, I think out of 15 years, I've had one quarter where there wasn't a single book sold. So I've got, it's about 700 to 800 books that have been sold in the 15 years. <clears throat> I, I did a presentation about the 90 years of the trials in September, and uh, people brought books that they'd already bought to sign. And I, we sold uh, everything that the museum had available at that time. So, <clears throat> and I do have another book, but, and I was worried that this one will take 30 years <laughs> to get out. <clears throat> But it was, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, and it, uh, the, the key was, and when I went with my grandfather in 1963 to Washington, D.C., we went to the FBI headquarters, and there on the wall was the window from the doctor's car and the information about the Flegel gang. One of the weirdest pieces of that story was, <clears throat> here I am putting this book together, I'm just about to get it done, and the lady from the Garden City Museum calls and says, Tom, you won't believe what I just got in the mail. What? The window. Yep. Uh, it had been having given to the FBI by the district court with the proviso that if the county wanted it back, they could get it. Well, 
<clears throat> the FBI building in Washington got remodeled in the 70s. The, sh the grandson of the sheriff from Garden City was working as an FBI agent. They crated the window up and put it back in storage. So it never showed up again at the FBI. But the grandson found it, and he started carrying it around with him when he was giving talks around the country about the FBI and how they investigate and stuff. And then all of a sudden, when he got retired from the FBI, he discovered that they were doing this at the Garden City Museum. And so he sent them the window. It is it's still on, on display. So thank you very much.